0: Well, we are going to take a little break from 1 Peter this week and possibly uh, next week as well. Uh, This week, we're going to look at the matter of heaven. And next week, we'll look at the issue of gratitude, gratitude. Uh, There'll be following Thanksgiving, but that'll be fresh on our mind. uh, So we'll consider what it means, particularly from a Christian perspective, uh, to be thankful, to be a grateful people in all of life. But this morning, we're going to look at the issue of heaven. Now, I was thinking of what to do this week, and I had a a couple of ideas, Um, but the idea of heaven, or the the topic of heaven, really became clear uh, to me that would be something profitable for us to focus on, particularly as we're looking at 1 Peter and the idea of suffering, and what encourages us in our suffering is the hope that we have in Christ. That's the whole idea of Peter, that our salvation is yet to come, and as we trust him in this world, we Look beyond what we experience here to what God has promised us in Jesus, which is namely heaven. It is to be with him. It is to be in his presence forever and ever. I did realize, however, I think on Friday, that I believe we discussed this topic uh, in July, uh, April or July of this year. Does anybody remember that? Nobody's going to raise their hand. Of course not. Well, we did, at least that's what I had on my notes, which I had had not realized, Uh, but we can never think about heaven too much, and so I wanted to approach it again this morning and relate it uh, particularly to the idea of hope, to the idea of our hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, In the late 90s, there was a rock band named Bon Jovi. You might have songs going through your head right now as I say that, some of you who are from the 80s. Well, beyond all of the popular songs of the, the rock band Bon Jovi, they had one that I actually read about this week, um, reading a book on heaven in preparation for this morning. And it was mentioned, and the song was called August 7th, uh, August 7th 415. And the song commemorated the death of uh, the daughter of a former personal manager for... Bon Jovi. And it was a tragic death. She was dropped off at a mailbox. I think she was about six years old and she never came home. And they went out and learned that it was a hit and run. She was dead in the middle of the street. Uh, That's how they found her. And so the song was written in response to this great tragedy, this great loss of someone who was a personal friend of this singer. And the song has a certain glimmer of hope. There is one line that says, I know tonight that there's an angel on heaven's highest hill, and no one there can hurt you, baby, no one ever will. But that is clouded out by what is overall a sense of gloomliness and hopelessness uh, of the song. And the repeated refrain, the chorus, if you will, throughout uh, is, is this line. Tell me it was just a dream, August 7th, four fifteen. God closed his eyes and the world got mean, August 7th, 415. And that's how the song goes, and the video is even gloomier than that. There's another expression of how unbelief views tragedy in this world and loss and suffering and all of the difficulties of being in a fallen world. This one has a little bit more of an attempt at least at hope. Or the attempt, at least, at the desire to want hope and to try to find hope. And it's a song by Chris Ray. And it's, the title is Tell Me There's a Heaven. And, and here's, the, here's the song. This is a little longer, but listen. The little girl said to me, What are these things that I can see each night when I come home from school, when mama calls me in for tea? Oh, every night a baby dies and every night a mama cries. And what makes those men do what they have do? to make that person black and blue. Grandpa says they're happy now. They sit with God in paradise, with angels' wings, and still somehow it makes me feel like ice. Tell me there's a heaven. Tell me that it's true. Tell me there's a reason why I'm seeing what I do. Tell me there's a heaven where all those people go, and tell me they're all happy now. Papa, tell me that it's so. So do I tell her that it's true? That there's a place for me and you where hungry children smile and say we wouldn't have it no other way. That every painful crack of bones is a stepping stone along the way. Every wrong done is a game plan to that great and joyful day. And I'm looking at the father and the son and I'm looking at the mother and the daughter. And I'm watching them in tears of pain. And I'm watching them suffer. Don't tell that little girl. Tell me. Tell me there's a heaven, and tell me that it's true, and tell me that there's a reason why I'm seeing what I do, and tell me there's a heaven where all those people go, and tell me they're all happy now. Papa, tell me it's so. And that's really the best you can get from an unbelieving heart. We can have a vague kind of hope that Maybe there is some ultimate plan for the, to make sense of the tragedy that we see, the hurt that we experience, the loss that we experience, the suffering that we experience in this world. But really, it can never rise much higher than that. Platitudes, empty promises, empty hopes, a general kind of sense that maybe things will be better in the end, better for some, at least those who did good here. But the idea is, tell me that it's so. That really, encapsulated in that phrase, is a desire to say, give me some kind of hope. Assure me that these things do make sense. Assure me that there is an end that is more positive when all this is over. But in absence of divine truth, in absence of the reality of faith and eyes open to behold all that God has said, there really is no hope. For the Christians, that's not true, though. God has told us that it is so. He has revealed that every pain, every sorrow, every loss, every tragedy is more than abundantly reconciled in the glories of heaven. He's told us that whatever is suffered here can't compare with the future glory that is ours who belong to Christ. Paul said that in Romans 8. I don't consider the sufferings of this world worthy to be compared with the glories that are His and all of those who belong to Christ in the future. And yet God has done more than simply tell us, although that would be enough because He is God and He cannot lie. But He has publicly provided the grounds and the proof in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And that really is how Peter begins his epistle. Let me remind you of these words that we've already looked at. So we're not hopeless. We have, in fact, as believers, a hope which cannot be shaken, it cannot be taken away. A hope that is pure, a hope that is guaranteed, a hope that is certain, and a hope that is grounded in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's a hope that we have, and that's a hope that we offer to the hopeless and to the hurting who do not yet know Jesus Christ. Now, I want to look this morning then at five truths about heaven that should fill our heart with hope and that should encourage us to holiness, the very things that Peter is encouraging us to in this epistle, which is consistent with all of scripture, namely that God's people have a hope that is certain, and this hope is manifested in their lives, it's manifested in our lives, it's displayed in our lives by our obedient faith, by our obedient faith. Now, I have far more here than we'll be able to get to this morning, but I do want to complete it in one message. So we'll skip along as we go, and on a few of these, we'll just kind of hit the highlights and get a big picture, a survey, if you will. Uh, Things more to whet our appetite than to exhaust in our tracing it through Scripture for the hope that we have in Christ. Here are the five things that we'll look at. Heaven is a real place, number one where God uniquely manifests Himself. Second, that heaven is about the glory of God. Third is that heaven will be a uniting of God's presence with the physical universe. Four, that heaven is a place of indescribable wonder. And finally, five, that heaven should affect the way we live. And I'll repeat these as we go through. First, heaven is a real place where God uniquely manifests himself. Heaven is a real place, so in other words, heaven is not simply a concept, it's not just a general idea, it's not a vague sort of promise or place that will end up in the future, that things will be better. It is a real place where real people are, where real angels are, where God's presence is really manifest, where those who have gone before us are really enjoying His presence even now. It is a real place. It is a real place. Now the term heaven, of course, is used in a two two primary ways in Scripture, in the the Hebrew and the Greek word, both referring really to the same ideas and are used in the same way. One is the observable creation, so God created the heavens and the earth, and that simply refers to the physical creation, the the sky, if you will, and that's divided up into two parts on day on the days uh, the opening days of creation. There is, in day 4 and 5 of creation, a distinction between the two parts of the expanse. It's called the firmament in some translations. On day 4, he places the stars and the moon and all other celestial bodies in space. And there's one idea of that physical creation, just the, the space that we see, the space that is out there, the space where the stars and the moon and the sun and the galaxies and all of that stuff is And then on day five, he places birds in the immediate atmosphere above the land, which is also called heavens. So heavens refers to that sort of atmosphere that we can see where the part below which we live, where birds are and so on and so forth. And then heavens is that part of the outer space where the stars and and those kind of things. That's the, the physical creation. Jesus, in a similar way, said heaven and earth will pass away. And again, he's just saying there is this physical part in this reality of heaven that we currently know that has a temporary existence. So heaven can simply refer to all of the created universe. But most commonly, when it refers to heaven, scripture, it is to speak of that place where God uniquely dwells, where his presence is uniquely manifested. Deuteronomy twenty six fifteen says, Of God, look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people. Isaiah sixty three fifteen says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Isaiah fifteen fifty seven fifteen says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and a holy place. And many other references. Let's simply speak of this place where God's glory, where his power, where his majesty is uniquely residing to be gazed upon by those who are there. In the Old Testament, God's presence and glory were displayed in the temple. And that's what was reflected in the psalm this morning, one of the great truths of God entering into covenant with the nation of Israel is that he will dwell among his people. That's the glory of the old covenant. He will dwell among his people and he will be their God. And the way that he uniquely dwelled among his people was in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And at the inauguration of both of these places, God filled them with his glory, with a manifestation of his presence. And it was such a glory that in his Exodus 40, when it happened at the end of that book, that Moses was told not even he could go inside of the temple because he was not worthy to do so. And in the same way, when the temple was made at the, by the hand of Solomon in 1 Kings 8:11, God's glory filled the temple. It filled the temple. So God's presence was often associated with the temple. And the temple was, in essence, in, in, a, in a symbolic kind of way, heaven on earth. It was a reduplication of the fellowship that, we, that man enjoyed with God in the garden. And yet it wasn't the completion. It was an anticipation of something even greater. But it was a place where God's presence uniquely dwelled. Jonah, from the belly of a great fish in deep distress, says, while I was Fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. And the idea there is that the temple could be spoken of as synonymous with the presence of God. However, they certainly did not enclose completely the idea of God's presence in a physical building. So, Clear to God's people, though they, the temple could be synonymous with God's presence, is it wasn't the fullness of his presence. Isaiah 66, 1 through 2, the prophets, God says this through the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus, all these things came into being. And again, Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, said, Heaven is... And the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. So God's presence was localized in one sense in the temple. And yet it was never completely encapsulated there. Confined, if you will, to a place. That's the idea of idolatry. That's the idea of paganism. No, God's presence is transcendent. It is infinite. We refer to that sometimes as God's omnipresence, which is simply to say that God is everywhere at all times in the fullness of his being. God is not more in one place than he is in another place. He's not more present in church than he is to the uttermost part of the universe and what is outside of the universe, which is God himself. The opposite of that is what's called pantheism, which says that God is a part of his universe, that there's a unity between the physical and the spiritual. But that is not who God is. He is infinite in his being, and yet he uniquely manifests himself in certain places, and the place where that is most gloriously seen, and the place, the climax of that is what is called in Scripture, heaven. Heaven. So the psalmist says in Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you, and beside you I desire heaven. Nothing on earth. Now this is played out in many ways throughout Scripture. And and again, God's presence and his person is often associated with heaven. And so Jesus speaks of the, the kingdom of heaven, which is the kingdom of God. To say heaven and God is the same, where heaven is, is where God is. The prodigal confesses in Luke 15 that he sinned against heaven, again, which is to say I've sinned against God. I've sinned against that place where God uniquely is, where he uniquely rules, where he is uniquely aware of my sin and with whom I need to be reconciled. God speaks from heaven. We see that in the Gospels. Even we as Christians pray to what? Pray to our Father who is in heaven. That's the Lord's prayer, the model for us. And so this could go on and on. Christ came from heaven. He is the bread which came down from heaven. Paul got a glimpse of that heaven, didn't he, in 2 Corinthians? Do you remember that? For a moment, he was taken up to the third heaven. And because of the greatness of his suffering, God gave him a unique uh, Uh, moment in heaven, a place where his presence uniquely is, and he says, I saw things there for which I'm not permitted to speak, things that were so glorious in their nature, so other earthly in their nature, and it was that sight of the glory of the presence of God in that place called heaven that enabled Paul to endure what he endured and to say, as we mentioned earlier in Romans 8, he doesn't even consider the sufferings of this world worthy to be compared to the glories of That are in heaven, the glories to come. Stephen, when he was being stoned in Acts chapter 7, it says that the heavens were opened up and he saw the glory of God and he saw Christ standing in this case at the right hand of God, the right hand of the Father. And it enabled him to endure those last moments of his life violently taken by stones being hurled at his body with a sense of hope and confidence and certainty that his next destination would be with Christ at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So heaven speaks of that place where God's presence in all of his glory is uniquely manifest to his creatures. And heaven is then all about the glory of God. The centerpiece of heaven is not redeemed man. And the centerpiece of heaven is not angels. The centerpiece of heaven is the glory of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's why heaven is the Christian's longing. That's why the temple was the longing Earthly, uh, earthly longing of the psalmist. But ultimately, it was, as the psalmist in Psalm 73, not merely the earthly temple, but it is in heaven to be with him. He longed for that, and that's what enabled him to endure the, the ironies and the complexities of this world, at least in Psalm 73, of seeing the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Paul said the similar thing in Philippians 1.23. He said that, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Languishing in a prison, suffering all that he did for the gospel's sake. He knew that he had service here, service in which he was sustained because of his hope of being with Christ in heaven. But he knew, even though he would stay here, his heart really wasn't here. It wasn't on this earth. It was to be with Christ. It was to be with Christ. So God's glory is uniquely manifest in heaven. Heaven is the place where the Christian heart longs to be. It longs to be with him. It longs to be in his presence. And one of the surest ways to expose the spirituality of a person's heart, either spiritual maturity or spiritual reality, uh, in essence, is to hear what their view of heaven is. And of course, in a a secular sense, in a worldly sense, heaven is used to be what? It's a place where somebody's happy. I know they're happy up in heaven now. They're, They're probably doing the things that they love to do here on earth. They're in a better place, and so on and so forth. But heaven, for the Christian, is all about being in the presence of God Being with him for whom our hearts long for. It's impossible for an unbeliever to have this desire to be in heaven. But for the regenerate believer, it is our driving passion. It is our driving passion. Let me note this then. Heaven will be a uniting of God's presence with the physical universe. Heaven will be a uniting of God's presence for the physical universe. Let me put a footnote in here. When we speak of heaven, heaven is really a broad concept. In fact, heaven, in terms of the ultimate destination of believers, isn't, isn't referred to as heaven. It's referred to as what, do you think? The new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth. That's, that's the ultimate destination of our salvation. It isn't wrong, of course, and Scripture speaks about, now where believers go when they die to heaven, to this third heaven, to this place where Christ is now. But even that isn't our ultimate state. Uh, When we we die in the Lord and we go to be with Christ, that's still not the end point. It's it's a stepping stone. Uh, There has yet to be the resurrection to take place. Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 5, he doesn't want to be unclothed, he wants to be clothed. He wasn't ultimately satisfied with merely dying and being with Christ. He ultimately was only going to be fully satisfied in the fullness of that salvation, which would take place in a resurrection body on the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth is ultimately our dwelling place. And this is important to grasp this, and we'll talk about this in just a minute. But the reason that's important is because often when we think about heaven... Well, you, don't, I mean, you won't say this, but often for us, when we think about heaven, it doesn't really have as strong of a grip on our heart as what Paul is describing, for example. Now, in one part, that's because he received revelations that we won't receive and that we haven't received. I don't think any of you have anyway, but he did because of his ministry. But we think of heaven almost as kind of like this, this ethereal, nameless, vague kind of existence in the presence of God. This sometimes we might even think of it as you know being on clouds with a harp and you know playing soft and gentle and lovely music and bouncing around back and forth with chubby little angels on clouds that look like babies, that kind of thing. If you go into most Christian bookstores, in fact, that's what you'll see in depictions of heaven. Or you'll see angels uh, with long flowing hair, usually female, which are never mentioned in scripture, only males. But heaven is, is not this sort of ethereal, this nameless, this vague place. Heaven is a very real and a very physical place. It is the dwelling place of God who is spirit, but it is the dwelling place of God who is spirit, who has made a physical universe and physical creatures, and more importantly, who has himself in the person of the eternal son united himself to humanity. The physical reality of heaven is most displayed in or most guaranteed in the incarnation in the enfleshment of the eternal Son of God, and even more so in the fact that he was raised bodily and physically. So the theological grounds of the physical reality of heaven is the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it is a very physical place. We will walk and move and touch and feel and see and hear and taste all of the wonders and the glories that are in this place, that are in this place called heaven. Now, the spiritual presence of God and the physical creation, uh, to us now, have a kind of separation to it. In other words, God came down, he dwelled in the temple, right? He wasn't everywhere uniquely manifesting that kind of opportunity for fellowship with him. God came in the person of Christ, and Christ, after his death and resurrection, sent his spirit, and now he indwells, and his presence is in the earth through the church. His unique manifestation of his presence is in you is through you, the people of God, who are his body, who are the physical presence of God on earth, who have his indwelling spirit in you. But even all of this is only partial, as wonderful as that is. It's only a a portion, a part of this full glory that God intended in creation and redemption, and that is namely for there to be no separation between his presence and what he has made, his presence and his people. So the reason that there is that separation now is only because of sin. Sin. Because sin has corrupted not only the spiritual nature of man, but the physical creation. And so we, we think then of God in this unique manifestation is there. Where is Christ? Is he here? No, he's, he's there. We're waiting for him to come back. We want to see the glory of God in its fullness. Where is that? Here? No, it's there. We want to see it when he comes and he brings it to earth. That's what I'm saying. Because even though we are redeemed and God uniquely dwells his people and is present through his people on earth, the reality is there is still a separation because there is still the reality of sin. And we see the effects of that sin on earthly, on the physical creation here. Isaiah 24:20 20 says the earth reels to and fro like a drunkard and it totters like a shack for its transgression is heavy upon it and it will fall never to rise again Romans 8:21 picks on that same kind of imagery and Paul says this, the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So even though the physical creation now declares the glory of God and it reveals the glory of God, it is... Even still, even with that majesty that we can observe now, lesser than the kind of glory that God intended it to have, and the kind of glory that the physical creation will have in the new heavens and the new earth. So we still, we still bear the consequences of that, even, even us who are believers, of course, yet to be fully redeemed. How do we see it? We see it, disease, sickness. Death, earthquakes, fires, famine, drought, turn on the news. thousand are still missing. I forget the latest total. 76 dead from this fire that just overspread in California that's becoming common news. There are these sort of non-moral effects of evil or non-moral evils, if you will, that are just a part of living on a fallen earth. We're a creation that groans, that reels under, as Isaiah said, the burden of transgression. Jesus gave us a little hint and a little glimpse of what this future would be like when he cast out disease, when he expelled the demons, when he opened the eyes of the blind, when he caused the lame to stand up and walk. That was a foretaste of what, what a universe and what a planet without sin would look like and will look like but it was just that just a foretaste just a foretaste but the current heaven and earth then because it bears this weight needs to be destroyed and and God will do that in first second peter chapter 3 he says this just listen in second peter chapter 3 he says just as the first earth was destroyed by or the first world was destroyed earlier by a flood Later it's going to be destroyed by fire. It's kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly men. He says all these things are, or he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. So, This physical earth as it is now under the burden and the weight of sin can't be the receptacle for the dwelling place of God in all of its fullness. Why? Because there's still sin. This earth must be destroyed and it will be destroyed. Now there's a question here on this coming destruction of whether God's going to just rejuvenate and renew this present earth or utterly destroy it and create a new one. There's biblical support for both positions. In either case, the world as we know it, however God is going to do it, is going to be destroyed and it is going to be ruined and sin will be eradicated from it. And so this this time is coming where God is going to prepare the earth by destroying sin and making it ready for his presence to come and reunited with his people where there is no longer any separation it's a revelation between the physical and the, the full presence of God. Revelation 21.3 says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. 21.22 of Revelation says, And I saw no temple in it in the new Jerusalem, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And so part of our longing for heaven is to be not separate from earth, as it were, not separate from a physical creation, but to have these things brought together as God intended. To have these things brought together in a glorious and holy unity and harmony where we walk and see trees and hear water and feel the wind and fellowship with other people in the full Presence of God, The beauty, the glory, the pleasures, the grandeur, the purity, the brightness that we experience here in our genuine Christian fellowship is only a dim shadow of what is to come. The greatest and pure delight of creation and fellowship here is real, but it is far greater in that which God has designed for us and is bringing to us. And so God's intention in salvation is to unite once again the physical and the spiritual in a glorious unity and harmony of us living in his presence without sin. And you know that that's been hard for that's hard for man to understand that. And of course there's nothing there's nothing within other religions that even comes close to that in its full reality. As a matter of fact, one of the things that has plagued the church throughout her history uh, is this idea is that there has to be a separation between what is physical and what is spiritual. You, you've heard this. It goes back to Greek philosophy, but it's taken many different forms throughout the history of the world, and namely the idea is that physical is bad and spiritual is good and that's led to all kind of errors like licentiousness so it doesn't matter what i do with my flesh i can live as uh, lustfully as i want because it doesn't touch my spirit which is good that is redeemed well, that's wrong or the other side is is that the flesh is bad, so I can't in any way enjoy physical pleasure, and so asceticism is the religious sort of response to that. And so I'm going to beat myself, I'm going to deny myself, I'm going to not have any kind of pleasures, because all of those pleasures are carnal and they're evil, and I'll just live as the spiritual being above all kind of desire. Stoics tried to live that way, for example. Or of the philosophers who said it was really our connection with God was through knowledge and the mind because that was sort of the subjective, intangible part of our existence. And the truest and purest reality or spiritual reality is knowledge. But all of those are wrong. God God has not put such a separation between those things. We are created physical beings. We are embodied spirits. We are embodied souls. And these things were never meant to be separated. And in fact, indeed, our future hope and our future longing is for that time when we can experience both of them in all of the fullness of what God has designed it to be is namely to be physical beings in every way, physical, and yet knowing in its fullest possible capacity the enjoyment of the presence of God. And again, that's guaranteed for us in the resurrection. What is incorruptible or corruptible will, re- will be raised incorruptible. What is perishable will be raised imperishable. What is earthly will be raised spiritual, a spiritual body. Which, by the way, I mentioned this before, doesn't mean that it's going to be this sort of non-material body that's just spiritual and we kind of float around like a ghost through walls and that type of thing. And by the way, Jesus never says he walked through a wall. But beyond that, what he means by spiritual is that we will have physical bodies freed from any presence of sin and all the maladies that come through that and be completely filled always with the Holy Spirit, forever spiritually pure in our fellowship with God and with one another. I'll mention that again in just a bit. So heaven is, is a physical place. It has physical realities. And there is a physical uniting of God's presence with, uh, or the, the uniting of God's presence on a physical universe created new by him. Rid of sin. Rid of sin on this earth because of its destruction and rid of sin because the final judgment on all unbelief and all rebellion will have been executed. So it's not only the, the sinful, the effects of sin on the physical creation, but even sin in terms of embodied in those who stand as rebels against God and will be forever judged and removed from the face of the earth. And the glory is for us, though, for those who are in heaven, when there is this uniting of the spiritual and the physical in this final reality of the promise of the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth is this, is that unlike Adam who was created without sin and could sin we who are there who are forever united with Christ will never be able to sin and never be able to lose that perfect state of felicity and joy and delight. Never. Never. So what is this Like then, heaven, this physical reality of heaven. Uh, Heaven is a place of indescribable wonder. It's a place of indescribable wonder. What is it like? Some of the physical descriptions, as he says in Revelation 21 1, that, that there will no longer be any sea. Now, this doesn't mean there won't be any water. There is the river flowing out from the throne of God in Revelation 22 that's there. There certainly is water. And this may, in fact, not even be a reference to the physical sea, although it likely is. But it is possible, at least, to also see this as a reference to the removal of the chaos and the violence and the unrest that characterizes our present condition. Sometimes sea, even often in the book of Revelation, is referred to as the sea of the masses of unredeemed humanity in rebellion to God. It's out of the sea that the antichrist, the beast, the raise up in Revelation thirteen. It's possibly to see that one has said this that it's a, ref- a reference to the foreboding presence of the sea to ancient man, to the apostolic age. This writer says the ocean spoke of separation and isolation rather than of a highway, uh, rather than a highway that links shore to shore. Whatever the meaning, it is a. It is a new heavens and a new earth that will have new glories and new characteristics, even in its physical aspects, uniquely designed for the glory of God. There will be stars and planets. It is a new heavens and a new earth. It's not going to be an empty void that we're looking at in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be stars of a glory that we can only imagine now, suns and planets and galaxies and universes. To be explored. There will be trees and rivers and beauties and delights untold. Do you think there will be food there? There will be food. I think there will be food. He indicates this, right? We're going to remember it this morning. I will not eat this again with you until the kingdom. There is the tree which bears its fruit. In Revelation chapter 22. In law likelihood, and this is only guessing, we won't need to eat for survival, but it will be eating for the mere pleasure and enjoyment of it, without weight gain, because we'll use self-control more than we do here, I imagine. But can you imagine what it would be like there, the kind of food, the kind of delights, that kind of food and enjoyment of the pleasure of eating untainted by sin? Will there be animals? Sure, why not? Animals were a part of God's creation that glorified him here on earth. They were created for his glory and the good of man, for the pleasure of men. No reason to think that animals would not be there. Maybe new animals that we haven't even dreamed of. Maybe some of the animals that the human imagination has thought of that we see in movies and such will be there. I know for our middle daughter, Bethany, that she wants to see griffins there, which are these... (laughs) Flying bobcat like creatures. Maybe they'll be there. Maybe she'll ride one. Who knows? But there's no reason to think there wouldn't be animals uh, there too for the enjoyment of man and for the glory of God. There will be the New Jerusalem that he tells us about, and that's a very physical description in Revelation. It's a city of unimaginable size and glory. Now, when he speaks of the New Jerusalem, uh, it, we sometimes think it's massive in its dimensions, it's about 1,500 miles high and wide and so forth, it's a big cube, and we somehow think of that as like being this, uh, the sum total of heaven, like we're going to just live out eternity within this 1,500 miles, you know, something smaller than the planet Earth, but that's not at all what he says. It's the city that he describes as nations bringing their glory into, as gates that will never be shut, which include travel in and out of this great and glorious city. It is, a, it is a place of unimaginable glory, precious jewels, translucent gold, so that the glory of God may shine ever more perfectly in all of its parts. It's described, of course, as a place of holiness, Of love, of worship, and communion. It's a place where God's will is perfectly done. Which is to say, then, that it is a place of perfect love. It is a place of perfect love. Uh, Jonathan Edwards put it this way in a sermon. Actually, the sermon was entitled uh, Heaven, a World of Love. One part of it says this Heaven is a part of the creation which God has built for this end, to be the place of his glorious presence. And it is his abode forever. Here he will dwell and gloriously manifest himself to eternity. And this renders heaven a world of love. For God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of light. And therefore the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love. As the sun placed in the midst of the hemisphere in a clear day fills the world with light. Isn't that a wonderful picture? It's a place of love. Because God is love, because the summation of all of God's will to man is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that will will be perfectly done. That's what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To do the will of God perfectly is to dwell and to in an environment of perfect love, of perfect love. Romans 8:32, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Ephesians 2.7, it says that he might, the end of a heaven, or the end of or heaven for all of the saints is that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Our goal here, according to Paul in Ephesians 3:18, is that we may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length. And height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You will be able to comprehend in all of its fullness, though in an ever increasing comprehension, all of the glories of God's love for us who belong to Him in Christ Jesus. And we will forever. Ex- know the fullness of that love and express that love to God and to one another. And it is, in fact, that perfection of love that makes it a pure and sinless environment. Listen to what one author said. This is from the book I read this week. He says, Jesus didn't sin because he couldn't sin, and he couldn't sin because he didn't want to sin, and he didn't want to sin because his entire being was directed to the love of God. In the resurrection, we can't sin because we won't want to sin. In other words, even the internal conflict, there won't even be, for those who are in heaven, that struggled obedient decision to not sin and choose righteousness because there will be nothing in us to even desire to sin and everything in heaven will be perfectly suited to our delight and our pleasure as an expression of our holy love to God and to one another and it's the love so sin isn't even a possibility it's no more, get this, it's no more a possibility for us to even desire sin than it would have been for the Son of God Himself in flesh. We can be no more tempted with sin than God Himself could be tempted with sin. Because we are united to Christ and we have a fullness of His life in us that removes every ounce of desire. For sin, Not even the temptation. Can you imagine that? Do you realize that you in your life, even the most mature and godly saint here, who would that be? Go ahead and raise your hand. <laughs> we want to use it. OK. Even the most mature and godly think of the apostle Paul. Nobody, I don't think any of us would say we're even halfway to where he was. That's generous. But even Paul never lived a moment of his life, not even one second on this earth, if you thought of it, out of the presence of sin. Not even one moment, and he was the most godly. Whereas in heaven, we who are there will be totally, totally free from even the presence of sin. The very thought of sin won't even enter our mind. We will perfectly do and desire to do and only desire to do the will of God always at all times. We will love God without fail, and we will love one another without fail. It's glorious. It's wonderful. 1 Corinthians 13, now, now, But now faith, hope, love, abide. These three, but the greatest of these is what? Is love. Is love. A place of perfect joy. Romans 14:16: "The kingdom of heaven is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And there will be a fullness of the spirit, without end, again, a spiritual body, completely filled and dominated and under control of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. That will be what heaven is like, an unending experience of the delight. Of being in the presence of God. What will we do? We'll worship, of course. But again, worship isn't that sort of silly picture of just sitting around on harps or sometimes people point to that. What we'll do is worship to Revelation chapter four and five, you know, sitting around and casting down our crowns and, you know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We'll do that, and that's glorious. That is a part of it. But that's not that's not the fullness of what worship is. Worship isn't just singing praise songs on Sunday morning or humming them under your breath. Worship isn't just reading your Bible. Worship isn't even those close times of intimacy and prayer. That None of those things fully encapsulates worship. Those things are part of worship. Those things are included in worship. But those things do not embody the fullness of what worship is. What is Worship. Worship is the whole life response to all of who God is and all of what he has done. It's the whole heart of response of overflowing gratitude, joyful obedience, delighted fellowship, and sweet enjoyments of him in all things. Worship is a whole life experience caught up into the glories and the wonders of God, so that whether you eat or drink, you worship. Whether you serve, you worship. When you sing, you worship. When you walk down the road, you worship. When you do your work, you worship. And so the idea of limiting that to some kind of activity of just almost in a mantra sitting around a throne is not the idea. Worship is so much more glorious than that. It's so much more wonderful, so much more glorifying than that. We worship God when we enjoy God. That's the chief end of man. We worship God when we delight in his good gifts and give him praise. We worship God when we delight in the joys and the fruits of a godly marriage, in godly friendships, in acts of service and love. All of those things are a part of worship. When we enjoy a good steak dinner and passing our tomatoes on to someone else at the table. In all of these things... We worship God. And so, understanding this sort of connection between the resurrection and between creation and between redemption doesn't diminish the glories of God. It makes it more real and it makes it more wonderful. So, it's not, it is a full, whole life experience in all of its details and all of its wonders and all of its parts. Of enjoying and delighting in God and in one another. Of course, there'll be singing and making melody in our hearts and other things. Revelation 22 says that we'll serve God, that we'll serve him. It involves work. that might be hard for you to imagine, but work is, is a part of God's good creation. Being active and being productive. And that idea even includes rewards. One is, I think, captured this well when he said this. It's surely, speaking of rewards, it is surely intimacy with God. It is responsibilities in which we shall prove and reveal our intimacy with God, and it is to glorify God more abundantly in the life to come than here and fall in life on earth. Heavenly rewards must, it would seem to me, and I would agree, include an increased opportunity to glorify God through acts of joyful service. We'll serve Him. Our reward here is to serve him. Our reward in heaven for that service is to serve him more. in joyous, glad service and obedient service. I just pray for my own heart and yours that I could capture the reality of that. How much more obedient would we be? We'll rule with Christ, we'll grow in the knowledge of God, so many other things to consider. But it is, let me just end with this thought, because we come to the table. It is our understanding of heaven. It is our understanding of heaven as that place where God uniquely is, where Christ is. That place of heaven that is a very feel, uh, physical and real place in which we will know all the delights of his presence without sin, ultimately in a resurrected body, to live in his presence with all of the holy angels and all of the redeemed of all time, forever in joyful fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and one another. That place where there will be no sin, where the, everything there will be perfectly suited to the glory of God and our delights and our pleasures in him. An endless place of discovery and wonder and enjoyment and growth. That's, that's what it is. And if we understand that, it, it should increase our holiness in this world. It should increase our holiness in this world. So as we set our minds on the things above where Christ is, we purify ourselves. As John, 1 John 3 says, we purify ourselves even as he is pure. Even as he is pure. And it should be our passionate pursuit. C.S. Lewis noted this. Uh, one notes that uh, in C.S. Lewis, uh, Chronicles of Narnia and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, If you've seen the movie or read the books, um, we've done both many times in our family, you have this beloved character named Reepicheep. It's a little valiant mouse, uh, but who has such dignity and honor. He's a very noble character, the most noble character really in all of the Chronicles of Narnia. And in The Dawn Treader, this mouse, Reepicheep, has this passion to reach Aslan's land. And if you're familiar again with Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is like a symbol of Christ. And Aslan's land then would be heaven. It would be this, this place where Aslan is, the place where uh, no one else uh, has gone. It's a place different. It's other than. It's the longing of the hearts of the people who are, in this case, in Narnia, in this land called Narnia. This author says, "...a glimpse of how life might be lived when the new heavens and the new earth are in view." Speaking of Repertib, Lewis knows what all saints throughout history knew... It is those who care most for the next world who do the most for this world. And then illustrating that through Reaper Chief's determination, he reminds us of these words of this valiant figure. And he's talking here about his determination to reach Aslan's land. He says this, My own plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the dawn treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. That was his determination to reach this place where Aslan was, Aslan's world, and so it is, and it should be for us to reach that place that Christ has purchased with us for every believer with his own blood and prepared for us every promise and every blessing of redemption in his presence where we will stand before him blameless with great joy forever, covered in his righteousness and his life. And one of the most constant reminders of heaven that we have of our coming resurrection is the Lord's Supper, which we now take. And the Lord's Supper, by the way, reminds us, and it should remind us as we take these elements, again, that heaven is a very physical reality. It is a physical world. What we eat and drink, we anticipate doing with our Lord when he returns. And so through remembering His body given for us, His blood spilled for us in our redemption. We are, and should be, have our hearts and our affections directed again to that to which God has saved us to experience, namely the new heavens and the new earth. Let me pray, and then the men will come and uh, hand out the elements. And then as Kathleen plays afterwards, uh, just take that time to prepare your heart to worship God uh, in the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for The gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for the hope of heaven that you have given to us. May we think much on it. May our hearts be encouraged and strengthened uh, by remembering the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. Help us to put away sin and to see it for what it is and to pursue that which is our true joy and good, namely righteousness, and to be more fit for that great place for which we have been purchased and called, namely heaven. And to this end, we ask that you would strengthen our hearts as we remember the great glories of the gospel and the promises in Christ through the bread and the wine. In your name, Jesus, amen. On the night of his betrayal, our Lord sat around the table celebrating at that time what had been the Passover meal, which he, he changed and transformed into what we celebrate now, which is no longer a reminder of the deliverance of his people from Israel, but that greater deliverance of his people from sin through his death and through his resurrection, Which, when he gave these words, was not fully understood by the disciples, but it would be understood shortly afterwards as they would flee him, witness the events that left them in confusion and fear, but later come to understand them after the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit and Christ with them for 40 days, explaining these things to them. We have the advantage of looking back and knowing the full glory of the promise and of the full wisdom and kind and gentle graciousness of our Savior, to give to them the tradition that we now hold some 2,000 years later. And that is the tradition of obedience to the ordinance, to remember his death and anticipate his coming through the bread and the wine, which are emblems and pictures that we are the fruit of his death and his resurrection, that we are what he died for, whom he died for. And we are the ones who have believed and anticipate his return. So in instituting this with his disciples on the first celebration of the Lord's Supper, Matthew tells us that while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's do together. And then taking a cup, which he said was a symbol of the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. And he says, I say to you, I will not drink of the, this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is a kingdom inaugurated through the coming of the Spirit and the formation of the church. It is a kingdom that is being built now, That Christ is building, as he calls his own, to himself, to faith and repentance in the Son. But it is a kingdom also that is coming. And that we long to experience with him present on earth once again with us. And we remember that our participation in that kingdom is through his blood, his shed blood, his violent death, his substitutionary death, bearing the sins of his people on cross for the forgiveness of our sin, purifying us to be in his presence. Let's together honor him and drink together. Well, there will be no closing hymn uh, today, so let me, uh, as our benediction, close us in prayer. Father, thank you for the great gift of your Son. And our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your obedience to the Father and that divine will to come and Take on humanity to live as our substitute, to die as our substitute, to bear on the cross our sin, the sin of all who have trusted in you, to rise from the dead for our life, to send your Holy Spirit as the seal and the guarantee and the promise of the promise that we have in you. Thank you for the kingdom that is coming. Thank you for the future that you have gained for us. And thank you for the wisdom of ordaining the gathering of your people each week and for the remembering of your body and your blood in the table. Strengthen our hearts by all of these things that we might live for you each day, walking by your spirit, displaying the virtue of Christian character to your everlasting glory and in hope of all that you have promised. In your name, Jesus. Amen.